I hear women ask that question all the time. Well, how did you feel when you failed? It's like, wrong question. I didn't fail. I didn't fail. And you would never ask a man that. Hello, and welcome back to Women Rule. I'm Carrie Budoff-Brown, editor of Politico and host of this podcast. That was Carly Fiorina you just heard, the former Republican U.S. presidential candidate, former Hewlett-Packard CEO, and potentially a contender for U.S. Senator in Virginia. We talked about a whole bunch of things, how Trump shouldn't tweet anymore, about her disdain for the question about the fear of failure. Carly Fiorina was the CEO of Hewlett-Packard for six years. It was a very high-profile run for her to the point that I personally remember when she was fired and I was probably in college and remembered reading about her firing. You know, her next big you know, public move was to run for California Senate against Barbara Boxer. And it was a really high profile race. She also went through some, you know, personal issues during that race, being diagnosed with cancer, losing her daughter. It was remarkable. It's remarkable to hear her talk about how she has worked through what what many people describe as failures. She does not see them as failures. These are are conscious choices on her part to, to really go for the moon. And if she doesn't get there, they should not be called failures. These are experiences. These are choices that she makes. So please stay tuned for our interview with Carly Fiorina. And let me know what you think about the fear of failure and whether we should be discussing that conversation among women in that way. On the Women Rule podcast, we'll be bringing you conversations and taking you backstage with women leaders, the big bosses in politics and policy. As always, if you're a fan of this show, please subscribe to Women Rule on iTunes, rate us, and leave a review. Share our episodes on social media, and follow me on Twitter at Brown. Women Rule is produced by Politico in partnership with Google and the Tory Burch Foundation. We're here with Carly Fiorina. My own publication, Politico, uh, reported a couple months ago that you were, quote, certainly looking at the 2018 Virginia Senate run. Where are you at this point in that process? Well, I continue to look and continue to consider (laughs) it, but it's not a decision that I've made. And I don't think it's a timely decision. You know, we have elections going on in Virginia right now, uh, gubernatorial elections. Our primaries are next week, and that's an important set of races uh, up and down the ticket. And so... So what is the timeline let's for get, you? Let's get through those. <laughs> true, true. What is the timeline then? Is well, it? I think we have to get through those elections okay. or certainly get closer to those elections. And what are you considering as you're thinking about this? What is that 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 sort of the argument, counter-argument in your head right now? Well, I think or with other couple, folks yeah, as well? Yeah, I think yeah. there are a couple things to consider. Number one is, is this a position where I can make uh, the most contribution? I mean, I focus every day on how can I make a positive difference, and I'm engaged in a lot of activities right now where I think I am making a positive difference. So is the Senate uh, the right place for me to go next? That's one consideration. Another consideration is whether or not this is a realistic opportunity to flip a seat. Uh, and describe in other that. words, when you say realistic opportunity, well, in what other do you words, mean? Um, when we look at 2018, although certainly I have a decision to make, the truth is the Republican Party also has a decision to make. Are they prepared to actually invest in flipping a seat, which is currently held by a Democrat to Republican hands? And the reason that's important is because obviously this will be a very expensive race. Uh, the Democrats are, are going to pour lots of money 
into defending Tim Kaine's seat. He's already made that clear. And so it's not simply about a single candidate stepping out and saying, I'm going to run. It's also about whether uh, others in the party and around the nation will rally around that opportunity. And uh, so are the conversations you're having with party party officials, fundraisers, trying to take a temperature of the support you might be able to get you or know, the, the appetite is, for going after Tim yeah. Kaine? Because those are two different, almost connected questions. But Tim Kaine was the vice presidential you know, nominee, right? So he's going to have a, a lot of people rallying behind him and then... Republicans have to although, see this as a yeah. Although yeah. his time as a vice presidential nominee actually, I think, makes it harder for him in Virginia, not easier, because his position changed in many uh, important ways. Having said that, um, it's a little premature to have those in-depth conversations right now with the party or. Uh, donors and possible fundraisers. Why? Because there's an election in Virginia going on now, and you don't want to distract people from that very important work. But also because we're, what, 140 days into the new administration? I know those of us who are obsessed with politics thinks, think it just never goes away. But for most people, we just finished an election, and they're for- coming to see <laughs> how it's going to turn out here. <laughs> Yeah, are you looking at the environment too? Some say this. This uh, obviously the environment is not that favorable for Republicans. Uh, Hillary Clinton won Virginia, right? So that's although would, not by very much, not by very much, true. But she did win it in a yeah, in a race where, she, about, won a, where yeah. she did lose a lot. That's right, right. That's and right. Virginia was the one that held on for her. So yeah, by two I, points, although she expected ten. Yes, <laughs> indeed, indeed. Um, but it, how much of a consideration is is the environment? That is often the discussion that happens in off year elections with Senate folks running for Senate or House, they're considering the environment, who the president is, how he's doing. Well, certainly that's a consideration. But if 2016 teaches us anything, it is that we're all pretty bad at predicting. And we're a long way out. And so I think everybody can opine over what the current environment is like. But I don't think that necessarily is indicative of what the environment might be like by 2018. You know, just a, a common theme on, on the, my podcasts on women role is, is the process that women in particular go through to decide whether to run for office to do that. Is that process the same for men as it is for women, as a woman who's run for Senate in California and the presidency? Well, I'm not sure. Um, I, it, it's hard for me to generalize about men's process when I don't know what their process was. For me, it's a practical consideration. Obviously, uh, politics, like business, it's a team sport. And it's foolish to think that the candidate alone makes all the difference. Not at all. On the other hand, uh, I ran for president with roughly 97% of Republican primary voters never having heard my name. I ran for president with most people saying, what the heck is she doing? And most people thinking I wouldn't make it for a month. In truth, I made it a lot further than most people suspected. So I think it's a combination of deciding for yourself, where is it you think you can make the biggest contribution? I thought I could contribute in the presidential race. And understanding, is there a team that's willing to rally around you? And I was proud to rally a team in the presidential race. And if I were to decide to run for the Senate, I'm sure I could rally a team. But you also have to think about, um, is something practically winnable or doable or worth doing? And those are all the considerations I'm going through. Do you think men think about that in the same way? I know you're not a man. I do know that. But like, 
the I, I think from research and from discussions we've had, we recently convened a, a group of Republican women um, who are in the sort of business of getting Republican women to run for office, really looking at the question of, you know, what is the process and how can we focus on sort of the the bottlenecks and and get through them and I and I I think a theme that I'm hearing a lot and even my own experience is that you want to be like a thousand percent sure something is at least has a possibility of succeeding before you do it. Um, sometimes there's some questions as to whether men go through that same process. I do think that running for office, leading in any way, um, and leading is about challenging the status quo wherever you do it, requires risk taking. And risk-taking requires the courage to stand up to criticism. And I think sometimes women are more sensitive to criticism. And you see research that says that women need to wait to be asked, in many cases, to run for office, as opposed to men who decide. So I accept that there are some differences. I would also say this. I think it's particularly hard for Republican women, because Republican women are demonized. Women are supposed to be Democrats. Women are supposed to be pro-choice. Women are supposed to be a certain way. And you hear that in the political dialogue all the time. It's difficult to be a conservative woman. And so I think that's an added burden because the criticism is more intense. I mean, my candidacy was called an offense to women by Emily's List because I don't agree with them on abortion hard to see how that's offensive to women. And yet that's the rhetoric. And so I think women of all political persuasions, any woman who says that they want more women engaged in any sphere of life, including politics, women need to take a good long look in the mirror sometimes too and say, do we make it harder on each other? And I think sometimes we do. And particularly in political dialogue, I think we do. On that point of of women having a tough time in the political sphere, do you think how, like, based on your experience last year and on Hillary Clinton's experience last year, the challenges you faced being a woman running for office, do you think that will make the parties less likely to nominate a woman in 2020? Well, I certainly hope not, but there's no question that it's still different for women. And as much as I vehemently disagree with Hillary Clinton on policy matters, as much as I did not want her to be president of the United States because of her policy positions, I have empathy for Hillary Clinton. And I've said so publicly. And she's incredibly hardworking. She's incredibly focused and disciplined. And like any woman, out there in a position, a highly visible position of leadership. She was, I was, scrutinized, caricatured, criticized differently than a man would be. There's just no doubt. So then what was your strategy for dealing with that day in and day out on the presidential campaign? I mean, how much did you pay attention to it? How much did it bother you? How did you combat it? Well, first, I have a longstanding rule, which I... It developed when I was a chief executive, a very visible chief executive without intending to be, that I never, ever read my own press. Never. Not the good, not the bad. And the reason I don't read my own press is because it gets in your head. And when it gets in your head, the wrong things start to sway your point of view. 
I have people that I trust around me who do read it and who tell me when it's time that I have to respond in some way. You know, now, you can't always avoid it. So when I was a candidate and um, on a debate stage and telling my own story, um, someone who is well-known in conservative circles uh, tweeted out that I had played the vagina card because I had told my story. I know it's almost laughable if it weren't so offensive. I mean, it's outrageous. You know, men tell their stories all the time. And so there are things like that that happen that you just want to scream. The point is you have to be aware of it, of the criticism. You have to respond when it's necessary. But most of the time, what other people say about you or think about you doesn't define you. Was your bigger challenge the media in these, in this, when we're talking about this? Or was it your field of, of Republican uh, you know, challengers for the nomination, which, you know, we had that very obviously high profile example of the president, now president, discussing your looks. Yeah. In a very derogatory way, right? Yeah. Um, he wouldn't be the first one, but, uh, and he probably won't be the last one, but it was highly inappropriate, which I think I was pretty clear about, and most people agreed. <laughs> I would love to know, like, more of what you thought about that at that moment when he was saying that. And how, like, what did, well, and then how you moved beyond that, you know, as well honestly, when, when I was informed that yeah. he had said that, well, remember when it was first quoted, it was quoted in a Rolling Stone article, right? And then it sort of went yeah. uh, viral, so to speak. But when I was first informed that he had said that, yeah. literally, I laughed. Yeah. To me, it was so ridiculous. And maybe because... I have been in a man's world for so long. It wasn't particularly surprising to me. I mean, when I became a manager for the first time, this was a long time ago, my boss introduced me to my new subordinates in the following way. This is Carly. She's our token bimbo here. I mean, I have taken... So many things have been said about me yeah. and to me mm-hmm. that this was sort of one more. So I laughed. Of course, it didn't go away. And so then I had an opportunity to respond on a debate stage. Did that feel good? Um, you know, it. what felt good about it, and I didn't know what I was going to say ahead of time. Really? No. I really, I truly didn't. Okay. I knew I would be asked. Uh-huh. But um, my strategy for debates was I would prepare and then I would be in the moment. And so the moment gave me the opportunity to say, Mr. Trump, you just said everybody understood what Governor Bush meant. Every woman in America understood what you meant. What made me feel good was the audience applauded. Hmm. Because I didn't really know how the audience would react yeah. to that. Right. And then, you know, of course, he went on and made another comment about my appearance, only this was complimentary. You know, I think it's a beautiful face. And I ignored it because comments about a woman's appearance in that setting are simply not appropriate, whether they're good or they're bad. I love it when my husband calls me beautiful, but no candidate on that stage had any business making a comment. So how did you how did you move past that with the president? Then the nominee, you know, he eventually became the nominee. You supported him, retracted your support, I think at some point or raised concerns about his your support or him after the Access Hollywood tape. 
um, came out. How did you move beyond both personally how he treated you, the Access Hollywood situation, to I think in December you were being discussed as a possible member, you know, of his administration, DNI. Well, I, maybe it sounds like an odd thing to uh-huh. say, but I didn't take his comment personally. Mm-hmm. He may have meant it personally, mm-hmm. but I didn't take it that way. And maybe it's because it's happened so many times that I've had to learn what other people say about you doesn't define you. Your reaction to it may define you. <laughs> and uh, I wasn't going to give him that power over me. He said a stupid thing. It's not the first or the last stupid thing he said. And I think he's demonstrated in many ways he's kind of an equal opportunity insulter. He's insulted all kinds of people. So it actually wasn't that hard to move past it. Uh, I was horrified by the Access Hollywood comments and called on him to withdraw. I was perhaps the first to do so publicly. Um, And I didn't get over that. And then he became the president of the United States. And when the president-elect... Um, calls upon you to be considered for a cabinet post, of course you take that meeting. What, what's your assessment of how he's doing so far, the president? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, a leader knows they have to build support. And to build support, how you do things is as important as what you do. I agree with some of the what he has done. I think how he gets things done is not building support. It's eroding support. And I think over time, that makes his ability to actually accomplish the substantial change that the American people are looking for less likely, not more likely. And I think that's too bad unless that um, change, uh, that behavior in that course has changed. What would you advise him to do at this point? Um, Stop tweeting. He's shown in the last couple of days he's that's as far away from something he plans it's true. to do. Right? It's true. I mean, I don't so, think he will stop tweeting, unfortunately, but I think it's very destructive. I think it's destructive in two ways. First, he tends to be insulting on Twitter. And insulting people doesn't buy you support. It may not lose you your core supporters, but it's eroding a lot of support from people who voted for you. So when you're insulting He's not the only person that's insulting. My goodness, politics has turned into a game of insult and character assassination. And Democrats are not blameless here, not by a long shot. But he is the president of the United States. And so he sets a tone. So he's insulting. And I also think he's distracting. (laughs) So he, he will tweet about things that are not the agenda he should be pushing. Right now, he should be pushing infrastructure and tax reform. Mm-hmm. And, and then only this morning, we've heard him go after Sadiq Khan, say his travel ban is actually a travel Well, what people say has been a travel ban. He confirms that it is a travel ban. Yeah. I mean, that seems to be not what Republicans would want him to be doing at this Absolutely moment Absolutely not. Yeah. Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. How concerned are you right now about the, the Mueller investigation and the, 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 the charges of collusion? Um, and, and But, you know, maybe separately from that, just what happened after the Comey uh, firing. Yeah, I called publicly um, in early February for the appointment either of an independent prosecutor or a special commission. Mm -hmm. I've always called for that. And the reason I've called for it is because the American people need to believe the outcome. And the political environment is so partisan 
it's so poisoned that my concern was whatever the political process came out of, it's not that I don't think people are trying to do the right job in these Senate and congressional committees. I just was concerned the majority of Americans wouldn't believe it. They would take a partisan point of view. And so I've always thought we needed to get it outside the political process, either with a prosecutor, Mueller, great, I'm all for it, or an independent commission, which would do more of its work in public. And frankly, I think the, uh, the Trump administration ought to be welcoming it. They clearly are not, but I think they should. We need to get to the bottom of this. We need to understand what actually happened. And whatever actually happened, the American people need to believe that we've gotten to the bottom of it. If you had been the director of national intelligence uh, and President Trump had tried to come to you and talk with you about uh, the the Russia investigation, what would you have done? Well, I think um, it's not a theoretical question in this sense. Anyone who spent any time in the intelligence community or the law enforcement community, for that matter, the CIA, the NSA, Mm -hmm. DNI, FBI, uh, knows that the independence of those communities from political pressure is sacrosanct. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I think everyone would respond in the same way. Mm -hmm. Uh, you, You cannot be pressured in that way. Do you think that by the, the, we've talked about this also on Women Rule, uh, this administration or this cabinet, even the West Wing, does not have as many women in it as his predecessors. Well, actually, a lot of presidents at the beginning of their administrations often have t- difficulty getting enough women sort of around them, and I think they tend to do better over time. So this is an anomaly in that sense. But um, when you look at the makeup of the cabinet and you look up the makeup of the West Wing, are there enough women around the president? Well, look, one of his closest advisors is a woman, his daughter. Uh, His successful campaign manager was a woman, first time ever. He put her in that position. Um, Elaine Chao and Betsy DeVos are very accomplished women, among others. But is that enough? And as we documented last week, Ivanka has struggled to convince the president to come to her sort of side of the issue on some big things, climate change being one of them. It's well documented. She had hoped for a different outcome last week that didn't quite work out um, on whether to stay in or out of the you know, Paris Climate Accord. Are there enough women? You know, I think if you look at politics in general, what you would conclude is there aren't enough women. If you looked at the boardrooms in America in mm-hmm. general, I mean, less than 20% of board members are women still. Mm-hmm. Less than 20% of elected officials are women still. I think we have, in general, not enough women. You know, as we mentioned at the beginning, you're, you, know, you were a former CEO of Hewlett-Packard. You ran for California uh, Senate. Um, the president of the United States, you, you, you ran to become, uh, uh, you know, ran for the White House. You've played at a very high level. You've also not succeeded at a high level, and you're still thinking about going back at it again with with the Virginia Senate race. And like Carly, like you really push forward in a way that like is pretty remarkable. How do you deal with that sort of those seeds of doubt, you know, and 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 push past that? Yeah. So, so let's let's analyze your question for a moment, okay? Because I think it's relevant to a conversation we were having earlier. How many men? run for president and lose, most of them, would we ever be having a conversation with them about whether they'd failed? 
probably not. There are very few people who get to be president, and there are tons of people who run. But somehow, when a woman runs and doesn't make it, oh my gosh, seeds of doubt and failure. Are you kidding? I feel like I've succeeded beyond what virtually everyone thought I would do running for president. Nobody knew who I was. I had no political infrastructure. My goal was to make a positive difference in that process, and I think I did. I brought up things that others didn't bring up. I brought them up in a way others did not bring them up. I have no regrets about that. But you see, I think the way the question is framed is illustrative of a different standard. Um, no one is running around asking Lindsey Graham how he keeps going. Okay? It's not how we think about it. So if women are perfectionists, they will never take a risk because nobody's perfect. If you're so afraid of making a mistake, if you're so afraid of somebody saying, oh my gosh, you failed because you didn't get to be president, wow, we would never say that to a man. Well, then you're not going to do anything. I think women should ban the phrase fear of failure from their vocabulary. Do you ever hear men talking about fear of failure? But I think it's a very sort of real discussion, though. Yes. But maybe the wrong way in your view, which I totally get, which is a point well, well taken. I, my point is this. Yeah. I think what we women sometimes perpetuate yeah. is we equate failure mm -hmm. with making any mistakes, not having universal adulation and acclaim. Yep. It's an impossibly high standard. So if that's your standard, you're never going to do anything. Because the only way you escape criticism is to do nothing. Yes. If you just mm -hmm. fade away into the background, nobody can criticize you. Mm -hmm. Making a mistake is not a failure. The reason I got a little bit sharp with the question is because I hear women ask that question all the time. Well, how so, did you feel when you failed? It's like, wrong question. Mm -hmm. I didn't fail. I didn't fail. And you would never ask a so man So how prevalent that. is that feeling? How prevalent are those? Oh, I think it's very prevalent yeah. in terms and of the question. And how big of a factor in terms of deciding for women as they decide whether to put themselves out there, whether it's in politics, business? I think it is very prevalent, and I think when women get together, it's what they talk about. Mm -hmm. As evidence this, right? As evidence this. When women get together in women's conferences, this is always a topic of conversation. How do you move through the fear of failure? It's like, <laughs> you think men are gathering and talking about how we're going to move through our fear of failure? Forget it. It's not what they talk about. Mm -hmm. So... Um, how do we learn from our mistakes? Great topic. I think talking about failure over and over and over ingrains mm -hmm. a fear of it. It makes it larger than life. I'll tell you a little story. I was the CEO of Hewlett Packard for six years, longer than the average tenure. Mm -hmm. We accomplished a lot. We doubled the size of the business. We tripled the profitability. We tripled the rate of innovation. I was fired after six years. And I was fired after six years because I had two board members leaking confidential board data to the press. And I said, hey, guys, it's you or me. You're either stopping it and leaving the board or I'm gone. Well, guess what? They decided to hang on to their jobs. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, I get it. After it was all done, they said, well, let's say you retired and we'll give you a glowing announcement. I said, no, not the truth. You fired me. So we're going to tell the truth. You fired me. 
very soon after that, I went to a Fortune Most Powerful Women in Business conference. First question I got asked, how do you overcome this failure? I said, I didn't fail. I was fired. Very different things. And I was fired in large part because I would not compromise my principles. I don't consider that a failure. But the fact to me that that was the first Mm. question says it's just prevalent in people's minds. It's prevalent in women's minds. Mm -hmm. And it shouldn't be. So what did you learn from that mistake? What did you learn from that experience? Let's put it that way. What did I learn from that that experience? And you applied to future endeavors. So what I learned from that experience, it's interesting. So um, prior to uh, the board meeting, and deciding to fire me. I knew what they were planning to do. And I knew how I could have stopped it. Mm. I could have stopped it by going to those two board members and saying, all is forgiven. Mm. I wasn't willing to do that. And I could have avoided months of bad press by allowing the board to say, Carly has accomplished everything we set out for her. I had. Mm. They brought me to the board. She wants to pursue other things. Great. We love her. Thank you. Go with God. And I said, not true. Mm-hmm. I chose. And I chose knowing I would have months of bad press. But it's always a choice between what's worse. So all the way back to the strip club, what's worse? Not being able to do my job with these clients or enduring two hours of humiliation in a strip club. In retrospect, do you still think that was the right thing to oh, do? Oh, absolutely. Given how it's, yeah. Absolutely. So I made the same kind of choice. What's worse? Living a lie the rest mm-hmm. of my life, or enduring months of bad press. If I could just quickly ask you, what what did you learn from the California Senate race that you applied to the presidential run, and what does that then, what did you learn from the presidential yeah. run that you now <laughs> would apply if you ran again? So as you can tell, mm-hmm. I like big challenges. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Hewlett-Packard was a big challenge. Yeah. And the Senate in California, oh my gosh, was a huge challenge. The odds were long, yeah. as was running for president. The odds were very long. So the first thing... I guess I would always say is know the odds, be realistic about the challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't mind long odds. Mm-hmm. Uh, I never have, but you have to be realistic about them. Um, you know, in California, um, there were so many things going on that made that race even harder, things I couldn't have predicted. I got cancer. I you know, was very ill the last two weeks of the campaign, went into emergency surgery. Our daughter died. I mean, there were, it was just a hard, hard time for reasons that had nothing to do with that campaign. And it was a fight worth having. It was a fight worth having. You have to have the right team around you. And in politics, sometimes it's hard to find people who are honest competent, loyal, and dedicated to a cause larger than themselves. Mm. And I built that kind of team for the mm-hmm. presidential race, I'm mm. proud to say. What would be the one piece of advice you'd give really to anybody, but specifically to women as they consider whether to run for office in 2020, to run for the White House, given based on your experience last year? Yeah, if you have the heart to do it and the stomach to do it, mm-hmm. do it. Do mm-hmm. it. Because every time, why aren't there more women? Mm-hmm. Why aren't there more women in all these fields? Why aren't because there? not enough, well, there are many reasons, mm-hmm. but one of the reasons is not enough women will step out and try it. Mm-hmm. So it, I actually hope that one of the things I've done 
is encourage women to step out and try it. What are some, who are some Republican women that you're keeping your eye on who have that potential in the next four to eight years? You know, I don't think about it that way, honestly. So, I mean, I would have to think about What's it. What's harder for women? Uh, is it harder for women in politics or in or in business, especially tech? I think they're equally difficult. Yeah. I really do. Just I think in different ways or similar ways? To in you? similar ways. In yeah. some, what are in, those similarities well, in terms of difficulty? Well, um, first of all, just sheer numbers. The technology industry, as you know, is male-dominated, and it continues to be male-dominated. You know, for all of Silicon Valley's lifting up of diversity, they're not very diverse when it comes to gender, and that's still true. So the reason I think sometimes business is easier than politics is because, at least in business, results count. That's how I got ahead in business, because for all the talk and all the stuff and all the meetings and strip clubs and all the ridiculous commentary, I went off and solved problems, and I produced results. And in business, results count. In politics, who knows what counts other than raising yeah. money and winning an election Let's, by any means necessary. The, the, the strip club comment, we might want to dive into that just a little bit more. Uh, tell me why you mentioned strip clubs. When I first started out in the business world, you know, I started as a secretary, but eventually I went on to get an MBA and I landed in Washington, D.C. as an entry-level salesperson for AT&T, selling to the federal government. And in the 80s, the three martini lunch was very common. And not only was the three martini lunch common, but a business lunch in a strip club was common. And so my first client meeting where I was going to be introduced to my government clients, government employees, by my colleague who sold to them happened in a strip club in Washington, D.C., because that's where guys went at lunch to drink martinis. So how did you deal? So, so, so bring, me, bring me back to that moment. Like, how, what would you do? Would, there were the ladies dancing on the yeah, stage well, and you were trying to talk about business with the men? Or, or is, is that First, my colleague told me I couldn't come. Hmm. So he said, sorry, you can't come because we're going to the client's favorite place and it's a strip club. And so I had to think about that. And I thought about it for a long time. And I was terrified. And I decided I was more afraid of not doing my job than I was of that strip club. And I also knew he was testing me. And I thought, you're not going to win. I'm going to show. So I showed up dressed in a very severe business suit with a little bow tie. I looked ridiculous. I was carrying a briefcase. <laughs> I mean, I looked like an idiot. And I had to cross the stage while an act was going on to get to the table. And I sat at the table with my male colleagues and did my best to appear professional. And yes, believe it or not, I tried to talk to them about their business needs for telecommunication <laughs> services. How absurd. <laughs> but the thing is, they became more and more and more embarrassed because they understood what was going on. And what I will never forget is this was a place where women would dance on top of the tables if you asked them to and you tipped them well enough. And so they, my colleague, my male colleague, kept inviting the women over to dance. On the table that you were sitting on at? On the table that I was sitting around. Oh, nice. And every time a woman came to the table, she looked at the situation and she said some version of not till the lady leaves. And I will never forget that because those women understood what was going on. And over and over and over, we've talked about how hard it is, and it is hard. But I want to tell you something. All my life, there have been men and sometimes, unfortunately, women who put me down. But there have also been many men and many women who lifted me up. And so the last piece of advice I would give 
is look for the people who lift you up because they're there. They could be a woman in a strip club who lifted me up that day, just as my male colleague was trying to put me down. How, how, how many times was that scene repeated um, bef- before that never happened again? Like, how long did it take to get out of that sort of era well, of doing you business know, here in Washington as you experienced it? Um, I had more than one meeting in a strip mm-hmm, club. Mm-hmm. Um, it's much more subtle now. Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, things are much better. Women are horrified when I say I had a meeting in a in a strip club. There's no doubt we have made progress. Of course we've made progress, miles of progress. When I became the chief executive of Hewlett-Packard, I was one out of the top 50. Now there are 15 plus. So yes, we've made progress. But the um, differences in scrutiny and criticism and the questioning and the caricatures, they're still there. It's more subtle, but it's still there. And so that's why I think it's so important. I don't deny any of the hurdles and the barriers. I've seen them all. I really have. But I also know from personal experience that you can come up against a barrier or hurdle and it can stop you or you can decide to keep going. You talk to me about fundraising. I mean, how, how, uh, on a scale of like, how, like how difficult is it? Um, how much of a consideration is that for you as you think about running for the well, Senate? And, and well, fundraising yeah. is always a consideration yeah. uh, mm-hmm. for anything. And, and we were talking about women in politics. You know, one of the things that women tell me it's hard for them to learn how to do is ask for money. Yeah. Um, Perhaps because I have a long business career, it wasn't hard for sure. me to ask for money. That's mm-hmm. like asking for the sale, you know. Here, it's a very, very good point you made. That you, you're, you were a saleswoman. You were in business. Like this is second nature to you, I'm sure, to ask for these types of things: money, the sale, the contract. Yeah. What do you tell women who aren't used to that? Um, that sort of sale that they have to make, um, getting people to give them money. I understand it can be hard for some women, but. My advice would be to be direct about it. Don't mm-hmm. beat around the bush. Don't um, try and be cute about it. Say why you're running for office and then say, I need your support. And that means I'd like a check. Donors expect it. Donors expect you to ask for money. And if you can't ask for money, they make an assessment. Well, you're not, you know, you don't have what it takes. Yeah, no, I, I you got to ask right. for the sale. When you decide to run, we'll be uh, if you decide to run, we'll be looking forward to the to the answer. Um, we we have a, a podcast uh, done by one of my colleagues, Isaac Dovier, off message, and he asked uh, Linda McMahon one question. Uh, Linda McMahon, you're the yes, FDA, I know yes. Linda well. Um, what one question uh, she I should ask you, and um, you should know that she was eager to know. What was next for you? Well, that's good to know. <laughs> Thank right. you, Linda. Well, all right. <laughs> Thank you, Carly. You're welcome. It was a Thank great you. pleasure.